Before we start this episode, we'd like to give a massive thanks to Jordan Freeman and the Zoom platform for setting up this interview. This is an audio version of the full video version of the interview we had with Stephen Kent. If you would like to see the full video version, please check the link in your podcatcher. This is part one of a four-part interview with Stephen Kent, and part two will be dropping very soon, so please keep an eye out for it. We had an absolute blast talking to Stephen about his books, The Ultimate History of Video Games, Volume 1 and 2. They are great books, so definitely check them out if you get the chance. With all that being said, please enjoy the show. everyone and welcome to a video that the uh, waffling tailors are putting out uh, this is a brand new experience for me and uh, for squidge who is also with us um, wait wait, uh, wait a minute that, that video camera's on it indeed is on squidge <laughs> oh I should have brushed my hair don't matter Oh, well. Um, yeah, we, we are joined uh, today by Stephen Kent. Uh, Stephen, uh, thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank this you is for an absolute pleasure for me. You're absolutely awesome. welcome. Absolutely welcome. I'd just like to take a moment and say thank you to uh, Jordan Freeman and his folks over at Zoom Platform for helping to arrange this. It was Jordan who put, a, put us in touch um, directly. So uh, gr- very, very, very appreciative to Jordan for that. So thank you ever Top so much, love. Jordan. Absolutely. A very, very nice gentleman. Um, as I'm sure you are as well, Stephen. And we're about to find out, I guess. <laughs> so, so yeah. Uh, hello, Stephen. How, how are you? Uh, it's morning where you are and evening for us, I guess. Yeah. That big pond does that to us, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, so how are you today? Are you okay? Yeah. It's been a nice day so far. Awesome. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, so, uh, we, we are, uh, I was going to say we are joined today, but I won't do that. Um, mm-hmm. we're, we're here today to talk a little bit about, um, you, Stephen, and a little bit about your, you now have volume two of a book that you've put out now. Uh, for, for people who don't know, uh, Stephen, uh, throughout the, the, I'm sure you can go into it later, but, uh, it, throughout the nineties, and you'll do a lot better job than I'm doing right now as well, I have to say. Throughout the nineties, um, you wrote a book called The Ultimate Guide to uh, video game history um, and uh, that was released and now you have volume two of that book out now um, and it has been I want to say 20 years since volume one came out so if you haven't read it by now you've no excuse <laughs> <laughs> so yeah um, would you mind uh, giving us a, a quick sort of elevator pitch for for the two books that you have out that are video game history related would that okay. be okay so yeah, the books are called The Ultimate History of Video Games. Volume 1 covers, really, truly starts out with Abraham Lincoln and Bagatelle and goes all the way to 2000 and sort of the collapse of the Dreamcast. Or it's about to collapse. You can tell it's faltering. Um, PlayStation 2 has been announced and is, I think, just coming out. And Xbox has been announced. PlayStation and book two picks up. It it has some overlap because there are going to be people who read volume one or volume two without reading volume one. 
so it's got a bunch of overlap, but it it it's interesting. I thought I would be able to go from 2000 to the present, uh, and I only made it to 2012. So volume three should come out around 2026. Wow. Okay. Because I mean that's that's um, that's. Uh, pre-guessing one of the questions we have for later on about is there a volume three, but you've, you're so prescient, you've already, <laughs> already answered it. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I, when, when I, when I read, uh, volume one, uh, it wasn't called volume one at the time. When I read volume one, I found it because I'm, Bit of an amateur historian when it comes to uh, technology. Uh, so big, people who listen to the show a lot um, will know that I'm a computer programmer. I'm always saying, as a dev, I will do this. Or as a dev, I do that. Um, but I'm, I'm very interested in how we got to here. Um, and so n- being able to go all the way back to uh, Bagatelle and how Abraham Lincoln may have been a fan. I believe the consensus is still out as to whether he was or not, but there's, you know, political cartoons showing that he used to play it. Um, and then coming forward from Bagatelle into Pinball. And then, and I didn't know this, that Pinball was banned in a huge number of states. And, um, you know, the, the story of, um, is it, was it Mel LaGuardia who trashed a bunch of Pinball machines and threw them into the New York River? Yes. That was, uh, it's very interesting. For whom the <laughs> airport say. is named. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and yeah, so, uh, I was, I was, I have to say, I was enthralled with, uh, volume one. I haven't gotten around to reading volume two yet. It is on the pile. <laughs> it's on the pile and it's next in line. Um, so that's, it's a shame I didn't get to it before we did this. Uh, but I, I now know that, there's a, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, everybody knows there's a lot of stuff to read up on, right? You can't really write a ultimate history of anything, um, without actually writing all of the history. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, I, I guess I'll chime in. I've just, I, this comes up every interview. Naming it the ultimate history was not my idea. Um, I, I really, really dislike that name because it, it's like sticking your chin out and daring people to find something more ultimate. And, and the, that never goes well for me. So I'm guessing something yeah. like the Traveler's Guide to Gaming History wouldn't have, <laughs> would that work better or? <laughs> yeah, well, originally I made my book the first quarter a 25 year history of video games. Oh. I was very proud of that title. Um, and it broke my heart, but they, what they said made sense. They brought it to me and they said, look, you see a book called The First Quarter and you don't know whether it's about coin collecting, basketball, mm-hmm. uh, financial business book. And then somebody walking along the shelf sees it. You have just really a, a couple of seconds that'll get them to pause. So you want yeah. them to know exactly what it is when they see it. I, I thought having Pac-Man on the spine of the book might kind of make it obvious, but they decided to make it even more obvious. Hmm. I mean, that, that's fair enough. Um, yeah. uh, in the, li- the line of work that I'm in, I know that naming things is hard, right? We have this really stupid joke in, in development where we say, the two hardest things in programming are naming things, invalidating cache data, and off-by-one errors. <laughs> mm. I know the off-by-one error thing. Do you ever watch <laughs> South Park? 
Uh, I have, yeah. It's been lots and uh, many, many while, years since I've yeah. seen it, but yeah, uh, yeah. Mm. I think I, I. Oh, sorry. They did a really no, no, sorry, wonderful yeah. episode um, just recently, I guess, where the boys decide to open a start a GoFundMe so they can make millions of dollars doing nothing and drop out of school, and they <laughs> they um can't come up with a good name for it. They, Cartman comes up with a ridiculous name, and, and it's pure Cartman, you know what? So, I mean... Yeah. And then Cartman comes up with a name that's recently been abandoned that they can so they can use it. So they, they're going to name their startup the Washington Redskins. Um, <laughs> and, on the nose. <laughs> oh, it, it gets... It, it gets more and more brilliant from there. Got to tell you, I'm a huge, you know, we'll come in, into, you guys are going to be kind enough to ask me my likes and dislikes. I'll say right from the start, uh, don't get me started on South Park. Brilliant show. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Um, so uh, I believe, uh, Squidge, you've got a, a couple of questions. Yeah, um, I'm just curious to know, um, what actually is your earliest video gaming memory? Well, remember, I go pre-video game. I'm, you know, this, this white hair isn't okay, for show. <laughs> well, what's left of it? I'm, I used people used to say I had such a great head of hair, and now I'm seeing more and more forehead. Um, anyways, um, I was playing. Well, I still to this day just stink at pen, pinball. But there were the electromechanicals. There was. Uh, Chicago Motor Speed, Coin Op Motor Speedway. There was Night Bomber. You know, there were games where you would control a little helicopter and try and pick things up. And I, I really liked those. Um, you know, now looking back, they're, you know, they're about as diversified as playing horseshoes, but, but in their day, they were, um, they were considered, you know, pretty amazing. Uh, yeah. So I was playing those, and then one day in 1972, I was walking to. Um, I was in a PE class. We went to a place called Kalihi Bully, Bull, uh, Bowling Alley. I was. I grew up in Hawaii, and as we walked to the lanes, there was a computer among all the pinball machines and electromechanicals, and so my teacher and I went to go play it. I have no idea who won, but we played pong. Yeah. I, I don't know how to play Pong either. <laughs> it's about as diversified as horseshoes. But what a great, yeah, you know, <laughs> if you were to actually sit down and play Pong now, and, you know, you, you'd have to get past the absolutely primitive graphics, it's still fun. It's still a fun mm. game. You'd still sit down, you'd, have, you'd be joking and having fun with the person across the table. Yeah. Okay, so I've got another one for you. Um, with my limited minutes worth of research, um, <laughs> I happen to know that you like uh, Tempest. Oh, I think Tempest um, is brilliant. Okay, so do you have a particular version that you like, like a port or? Oh, that's a really, really good question. You know, Tempest was unportable early on. It just was. It was so advanced. It was so smart. TVs couldn't get the sharp lines because they, you know, had a, a regular um, 
uh, CRT, you know, uh, versus those ray tracing screens. Ray tracing. I can't believe I said that. Anyways, you know what I mean. <laughs> it, it, yeah. it, it's early. It's only 11 a.m., right? Um, <laughs> anyways. Need coffee. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, the Atari 2600, there was no way it could do a decent Tempest. Uh, when Jaguar came out, it, they came out with a very good Tempest. But the thing, part of what makes Tempest enshrined in my mind is um, being in a dark arcade with where the only light is the low glow coming off of the screens of different games. Maybe she's yeah. got Betty Davis eyes or the, or Pink Floyd's The Wall is playing in the background. Um, and, you know, the Jaguar version of Tempest 2000 was fabulous. I only gave it a C. I really hate myself for that. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think you could argue it's a much better game technologically, except that the Jaguar, um, the reason I gave it a C was because Atari had said they were going to put out a, a wheel for it, and they didn't. Um, and mm. so I gave it a C, not based on the game, but based on Atari's default, which was a bad choice on my part. That was an electronic game. So the truth of the matter is, it's the best game that ever came out for the Jaguar. Um, yeah. Uh, and and actually by quite a by quite a leap um it's a one horse race uh but but um you know the arcade game is it, it's sensational it's a place in time uh, can i can i stray for a second here Go for I'm, it. I'm frustrated sure, to interview because i stray a lot and i apologize i was recently asked <laughs> um what was the best game of all time and the problem with that question is that what you're really asking is what was the most exciting game in its day? Uh, the example I love to bring up is, have you ever played FIFA Soccer on 3DO? I haven't had the chance now. Okay, well, you know, if you looked at it compared to anything today, it's passe. But the jump from... SNES FIFA Soccer and Genesis FIFA Soccer to 3DO where you had, you actually saw the, um, the stadium and you heard people chanting and it didn't sound like, like you were holding a shell against you and listening to that ocean sound. And there was an announcer who did not sound mechanical and all those <laughs> other things. It was so far ahead of everything else, you know, and so, you know, I would say that that's, that that's, for its day, the greatest sports game of all time. Um, but it doesn't compare to, you know, so many things that have come out since. Mm. I mean, with with uh, Tempest back in the day, I, I played it on the Jaguar. That was my first um, exposure to it. And I didn't have a clue what I was doing. Uh, mm. I still don't now. We, um, me and Jay, we went to um, was it Arcade Club. We went to, yeah. We so went to a place uh, called Arcade Club, Arcade Club, and I saw the original um, cabinet, and it was like free play. So I thought I'll have mm -hmm. a go. And you had a fire button and a dial, and it worked so much better. And I was just, I was just away, and I'd never played it before. But he couldn't drag me off it. You know, 
Uh, it's yeah. um, so much more fun than a pad, especially a Jaguar pad. But it was it was so much more fun with that dial and then bashing the button. And feel sorry oh, for that yeah. button. Imagine the amount of bashed in. Yeah. What a great <laughs> game! You know what an amazing mm. game. Um, yeah, well, you know it's interesting. You look at for arcades. You look at um, in movies. You look at Steven Spielberg, and you know the breadth of everything he created is amazing. But then. If you look individually at, um, oh, I can't believe I'm spacing on his name now, the gentleman who did Titanic and Terminator, Cameron, James Cameron. Uh, yeah, James Cameron. You know, the Cameron, individual yeah. James Camerons, if you look at him individually, he kind of has a better a better history than, than Spielberg does. Um, and it's the same thing. I think Ed Logg is the American king of arcade, maybe Eugene Jarvis as well. But if you consider what, what, uh, Dave Toyer did, just the individual games that he did, because he only did a couple, they were so good. So mm. there we go. Sorry. Mm. No, no, I appreciate it. Tangents is what we do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, I guess then um, th that's the biggest problem for me, at least. When somebody says, what is the best thing in this subset of things, right? Because you can't just take, like you were saying there, right? The, the FIFA on the 3DO had a wonderful experience compared to the other titles that were around at the time. Yeah. But, you know, paraphrasing your words, comparing it to what's out now, if you were to compare FIFA 2021, I believe is the latest one, wonderful. to that one there, it would be, you know, for one of a better phrase, no contest, right? Yeah. Um, because it's apples and oranges, right? <laughs> yeah, almost like comparing a modern fighter jet to an old Messerschmitt. You know, the Messerschmitt was such a leap over all the prop planes that were out there. But, you know, yeah, anyways. So how about you guys? <laughs> you guys have favorites? Oh, my goodness. Um yeah, so uh, favorite games for me, I guess. Uh, oh, geez. Uh, so uh, the Mega Drive slash... You, I don't oh, no, please do, please do. Yeah, yeah, Well, um, it gives me time I, to think, right? <laughs> yeah, I can think <laughs> of um, two games in particular that always leap to my mind whenever anyone asks me. It's... Um, a don't think it was that well advertised. It's a Resident Evil game on the Game Boy Color called Resident Evil Gaiden. Um, whenever anyone asks me to describe that, I say it's it's sort of top-down slash isometric with um, the combat's kind of like Rock Band. You know, it goes mm. left to right, and you've got to time it. That's how I describe it. I'm a, that's the best way I can describe it. I love that game. Okay. Um, I will play that game whenever I got you, because I've still got my Game Boy Color and a cartridge. I'll, I'll just sit down and play it. Um, so there's that. And the other game that I, I just can't get enough of is... Um, Dark Chronicle or Dark Cloud 2 on the PS2. Mm -hmm. Just a mixture of like action RPG-ish with the weapons, time travel, taking pictures and making inventions. I just, I can't, even, I, I have a thing where I, I get so far into it, forget what I'm doing, start again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then just keep going. I think I've completed it once out of all the years I've got it. But those, those are two games that I will constantly go back to I uh, just they are my favorites completely and it's it's a bit of a weird well bit of a weird ones there one for game boy color and one for ps2 you know but. 
but they hold special parts places for you. Mm. Mm. Yeah. 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 You know, again, it's like it's like I say, if I can go into an arcade and there's a, a Tempest machine and, and old songs playing on the radio. Oh, okay. <laughs> Jay? So one of them has to be the uh, Sega Genesis, Sega Mega Drive game, uh, Streets of Rage 2. Oh. Um, and, and so mine are based on like the nostalgia of what we were, like where I was and what, what was happening in my life at the time. And I'll always remember that Streets of Rage 2 was a game that uh, Squidge and I could play uh, without being competitive. Um, we had always been told uh, as, as kids growing up, you can't play competitive games because the, the competitive nature ends uh, the, the game ends and the competitive nature keeps going and we keep, you know, we'll, uh, I'll throw the controller at you or I'll throw a punch at you and it descends into madness. So we're not Rose. allowed to play competitive games, <laughs> even to this day, right? <laughs> it's a self-imposed rule that I have. Um, but with, with Streets of Rage, uh, two, uh, cause that was the first one of the Streets of Rage series. That was one that, uh, I feel like Squidge and, or at least from my point of view, Squidge and I bonded over. Oh, well, you know, let's beat the bad guy doing this way and that way. I mean, yeah, it is. A, it's a, it's a fun, button basher that just sometimes you've just got to put on a game and just bash a bunch of buttons and beat the hell get, out of someone yeah, yeah you can <laughs> take your stress out on on sort of uh, created characters right could could you think one did, of, oh sorry go on i'm sorry no please please <laughs> well could you still punch each other by accident in two i remember in one you could punch and kick each other by accident it's completely possible uh, in the second one, yeah. Yeah. You yeah, can beat the hell out of each other, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I seem to remember there being a way to throw your your sort of friend into the enemies as well and do almost like friendly fire, but with but with the person that you were playing against uh, playing with as well. So that was yeah, you throw them yeah. into a jump kick, don't you? Yeah, you flip yeah, them that's right. you flip them and then they jump turns it into a jump kick and then get hurt. I remember that. Mm. And two was the last <laughs> good Streets of Rage, right? You know, in three, all of a sudden you had the Gary Coleman-looking character on the skateboard, and I think you had a kangaroo in three or four as well. You yeah, know. Yeah. Yeah, we, we uh, Squidge and I tend not to talk about Streets of Rage 3. <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah, the series <laughs> ended at two. <laughs> we won't. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I feel like Streets of Rage 4 was a nice return to Streets. It was, it felt very much like Streets of Rage 2, the greatest hits, but that's, uh, it was still really fun to play, but uh, there was something missing. Some kind of magic was missing for me. It was loads of fun to play, but just not, it felt like it was dealing too much in nostalgia. Hey, do you remember this character? Hey, do you remember this move? You know, but maybe that's just me. I'm, I'm no, I'm no critic. I'm no journalist. I'm no reviewer. So just my personal opinion, right? You know um, what, though? All the critics and all the reviewers, that's all they have, too. I mean, a critic and a reviewer is just somebody who's found somebody that's willing to pay them for their bad bad opinions. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I'll have to remember that. <laughs> to write that one down. <laughs> yeah, please write that down. 
<clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and I think, I think one of the other favorites of mine, and it's a bit of a cheat, um, is, uh, the Super Mario Brothers on the SNES, on, on the NES, sorry. Um, because that's the very first video game that I remember playing. Mm. Right. And it's, it's like, it's, it's December 26th, 19. And, um, so, <laughs> and Squidge and I, uh, we've gotten up early because uh, uh, December 26th is our, our mother's birthday. So we've gotten up early. Happy birthday, mom. All this kind of stuff. Dad walks in. His look, Santa totally delivered a present, ex- an extra present today. I totally didn't go to the shop to buy it. Um, cause I forgot. Uh, here's, here's a present. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's the memory of opening the box, taking everything out and going, oh, what's this? What's this? Because, you know, we'd never seen a video games console before this. What's this? Oh, wow. It has a gun. What's this all about? And plugging it's it all together. It's being... bigger than my head. What, what, yeah, right? Yeah. And it being like a family activity. We're all discovering what the contents of this box are together. And then we got it hooked up. And I remember so vividly switching it on and figuring, fumbling through the, because we had uh, Super Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt on the same cartridge, fumbling my way through to getting into Super Mario Brothers, and I hit the start button, and suddenly I'm controlling a cartoon. Yeah. Right? It's it's not a video game, it's a cartoon, because it looks like a cartoon to me. Oh, I can make him move this way, I can make him move that way. Oh, look, that looks like a mushroom. What if, oh, no, that's not a mushroom, that's some kind of bad guy, because now Mario <laughs> is dead. <laughs> you know? Mm. And I think, um, I was talking to someone about this the other day and I feel like, um, that sense of discovery that, um, maybe Squidge and I had when we were younger, um, that immediate, cause I would have been about four or five at this time. Um, and so that sense of discovery is kind of lost because we're surrounded by this technology all the time, right? Yeah. Well, which brings up an, an interesting point. If you were to ask me what the greatest consoles were of all time, I would say I would go with with the NES and the PlayStation 2. And the reason I would do it, you know, obviously technologically they've been left far, far, far behind. But when they both came out, every week you could go to the to the a game store and there'd be some new game you never even envisioned could happen. Just a new direction entirely, and was always exciting and fun. And I'm not sure I've seen as much excitement or felt as much excitement for any other consoles. Mm-hmm. That that brings up an interesting uh, an interesting point actually, um, because I feel like, especially when the when the NES was because obviously the 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 NES NES however we want to pronounce it. Um, that to me feel it felt like it was rejuvenating the uh, the the American video game market at the very least. Um, I know the Japanese video game market had kept going. We'd had the uh, video game Crash uh, just slightly before Nintendo brought it over, um, and I feel like maybe because because of things like you said, you know, you walk into uh, maybe GameStop wasn't the place to go at the time. Maybe Toys R Us or Kmart or wherever. Um, uh, and you walk into these stores and there's, wow, look at this. Wow, look at that. And that, that sense that maybe that was the thing that rejuvenated the, the market, right? Rather than just here's another new product. Yeah. There was, a, there, there was that. And, and the other thing was when you made an art, when they made arcade games for the 2600, you know, I mean, like, Donkey Kong on ColecoVision was phenomenal. I mean, it, it was the arcade machine. But 
most of the arcade games, when you played them on home consoles, they weren't that impressive. They were they didn't feel like you were playing the arcade game. They felt shipped over and badly shipped. Um, I think it's fair to say this: this when people have read a book and see a movie, it's always disappointing to see what has to be taken out for the movie. And I think it was the same looking at arcade games coming to consoles. And all of a sudden with the NES, the arcade games for a little while looked exactly like the consoles. So, mm. mm-hmm. yeah. I, I wonder whether that is though, because, um, and I'm taking, I'm taking some information from, I'm going to cheat here and I'm going to take some information from, from volume one of, of your, your book series. Um, mm. and that is, um, you know, the 2600 was designed in the seventies and, uh, maybe, how do I put it? Maybe outlived, um, compared to what was, what else was being released at the time. Maybe it was stretched too far. You know, maybe the hardware was, it's a little bit dated now. Maybe we should refresh it. And then I know with the, is it the 5600? They hired external, to, um, hardware engineers to develop that. And then with the 7200, they bought someone else's idea and brought that in, if I'm remembering correctly. And so, like, the Atari hardware was kind of, from my point of view, um, it felt like the 2600 was stretched too far. The 5200 was brought in, um, uh, was it the 52? I feel like yeah, it was 52 because they were, yeah. Uh, and like the, the 52 was designed by someone else by committee. And then the 7800 was like, uh, quick, we need something to release. Um, we'll just buy that hardware and rebrand it, sell it on, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting because the NES had the same basic chip as the 2600. It was a slightly updated, but what they had surrounded it with was so much better. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then there were just so many things that were done a little better on, on, you know, just everything was a little better on the NES. Mm. Yeah. I suppose if you have your competitors to compare to, then you can say, hey, what didn't work so well for them? And how do we avoid that, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's, it's interesting because historically, before the NES, you know, Nintendo tried a couple of other little consoles that were more atar- like the, the, the Pong home Pong machines. And I think... In a way, Nintendo's big thing at the time was to see what Atari is doing and and improve upon it. Rather, you know, because some companies really are satisfied to just take what the competitor has done and do it themselves. But Nintendo always was driven to find a way to improve. It's um, competition breeds innovation, doesn't it? If you've got healthy competition, innovation will just go up leaps and bounds, especially with especially with um, advancements in technology, because it was, like, going pretty thick. Yeah. You know, from the NES onwards, it was going really fast. Yeah, it was. So health, healthy competition gets you really good advancements, and you know, which is all good for the consumer. Yeah. Oh, it's wonderful. I mean, you know, when you look, especially... I've got to give props here to Sony, because, you know, generation after generation, Sony really... Um, more than anyone, I think, makes a big leap over the generation before. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's always impressive. 
very. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you um, if you take a look at uh, PS2 into PS3, they used a completely experimental CPU architecture, right? Yes. Let, let's let's give it a try and see what happens. Um, you know, PS4 went back to standard PC architecture, but you know, the, being able to say, "Hey, we are a big enough, powerful enough." company and and people will will make games for our console and so we can take this risk um it's similar to i suppose when a developer some some game designer comes along and says what if we did this but subverted everyone's expectations and tried it this way um you know they're experimenting right or maybe when a playwright says okay i'm gonna i'm gonna write a stage show but i'm gonna subvert everyone's expectations and go this way that's the only way that you can um innovate is to try new things right you know well and and again here again and it's funny because of the three console makers sony is the one i'm most alienated from but i'm gonna give them (laughs) a a little more props on this and i i don't know soccer what you call football well enough to comment so i'll go with american football and american football you'll have two teams playing and especially if one team is only a little better or is luck is ahead because they're lucky they'll get a lead and then they'll just try to stall out the game Mm -hmm. um yeah and and it never works it almost never works here in seattle we had a uh, 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 coach his, whose first name was Chuck, and they used to call him Ground Chuck because when he'd get f- uh, far ahead, he'd he'd go to an all ground game and, like I say, just try to stall out the game and, and take his victory. Um, mm. Sony's never been guilty of that. Never, ever, ever. I mean, every console, they go out on a limb. They find they t- really try to stick things in that weren't there before. They may have gone too far with the PS3. Um, but that even that they went too far says a lot about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And I think um, uh, if you look at the, the launch of the PS1, uh, or the PlayStation or the PSX or you know, whatever we're going to call it going forward, um, you can see that, but in a in as much of a technological improvement, but also um, from a, a developer support standpoint as well. Um, so I know that looking back myself and reading through what information there was at the time for developing for the NES, for the SNES, for the Genesis slash Mega Drive, all of the consoles that were around at the time from Sega and Nintendo, the documentation you got was, here is the chipset. Yeah. And that was it. Whereas um, when when Sony came along, and I feel like I'm stealing some of your thunder here, uh, Stephen, that uh, when Sony came along and they invented, you know, they came up with the PlayStation, which I love that it was originally two words, because <laughs> there are workstations, right? Um, when they came along with the PlayStation, they went, okay, we need a development house to develop some tools to make it easier to write the software. And then we need to reach out to people and say, if you get stuck, let us know and we'll come and help you which I think is an innovation in, of itself, right? They, it's a world of difference having that support there. Yeah, they were yeah. serious about that too. I mean, they were really serious. And 
I remember during that time period and at the launch of PS2, because, you know, things turned turned around after that. Um, uh, You know, I mean, (laughs) there's the great line that nobody knows who said it first, I don't think. I've never known who said it first, but somebody commented the emotion engine. The only emotion I ever got from it was despair. (laughs) 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 But... But with PS1, I mean, Sony was so serious about making every developer love them. Um, Mm. And they just bent over backwards. And and you had to do it because you had these two giants dominating the field. Um, Jim Wims, you know, they went through leadership quickly. They started out with um, Steve Race here in America. And then right before the launch, they they nixed him, and his lieutenant was Jim Wims. And they were longtime friends and are still good friends. Um, and then, <laughs> then I'll be darned if he didn't disappear pretty quickly. And and then it was Kazurai, and they, they stayed with Kazurai for a long time after that. Uh, and he became the head of all Sony eventually. Um, but. But I remember talking with Jim once, and he, he told me about this focus group they did, where one of the things that they had to do to change things was they looked at, at the SNES, at, at their focus groups, and everyone agreed the SNES was a better system. It was it had you know handled much more color, better colors. It could do a little 3D, had a better sound chip. Yeah, it was a better console, and the Miyamoto games were. Phenomenal. They were huge. They were giving. Uh, Sega had the cool. And that was really interesting. In the focus group, they'd have a room where half the people were owned SNESs and half the people owned the Genesis, a Mega Drive in, in England, obviously. And they'd say, okay, how many of you own a SNES? And the, the NES holders would be seen there on their hands. No, me? No. And they know the person on the phone. You know, part of the reason you got in on the interview was because, but nobody wanted to admit it in public. And yet, hmm. what they found was more people liked this nest than liked their Genesis. And so they wanted to find the in-between where people were happy with the PlayStation, but there was also a cool factor. Yeah. And they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I think it really helped that they that the the target demographic that they went after. Um, so I feel like um, Nintendo's target demographic is always. I'll happily be wrong about this, but Nintendo's target demographic is always everybody. Everybody can play. Everyone can be involved. Um, and at the time, I feel like Sega's was very much. Hey, teenagers, you want to be edgy, you want to be hip, you want to be, hey, we'll invent this thing called blast processing and we'll have the adverts that literally end with someone screaming the name of the company. It was very much, um, I want to say, uh, almost like uh, trash TV and uh, punk rock, right? In your face, at least. Like yeah, I'm, I'm using <laughs> the wrong terms, but that's, that's how it feels, right? Yeah. And then, um, you know, Sony came along and it feels to me like they went, right, okay, we want to be a proper consumer device. 
we want no nonsense, but we also want to go after this very specific core demographic of, you know, people between maybe the ages of eight and, uh, I don't know, 20. I don't know how demographics will usually break down, but it feels like it was very much that sort of, uh, maybe 13 to 25 year old group. It was like, Hey, you could play CDs, but also there are these amazing games that have, you know, you can go on an adventure and cross the world and there's full motion video and there's, uh, or in the, in the, in the case of Wipeout, you know, there's the, the underground, uh, underground, uh, music scene from the UK will get real artists in. And it feels like they, they, they knew exactly the market that they were going for. Sony just they, they they and it's interesting because they tapped into something. They they helped a wave that was already happening, which was, you know, Atari just made their games. Nintendo said, Hey look, you know, here are games for young people because the market is full of young people. And Genesis, you know, or Mega Drive just happened to appeal to to the high school crowd which were the people who had played Nintendo when they were young, but now they were embarrassed to be seen with Mario and, and Kirby and, you know, I mean, yeah, they it, it just so happened that Mike Katz, he doesn't get enough credit for this. He was the first president of Sega of America, um, said, we need a football game. We need sports. He was the one who said that. And then mm. Sony came in and said, well, you know, they left um they left grade school and they still wanted to play. And now they're in high school and they still wanted to play. Why would they stop wanting to play now since they're in college? Just because they entered college. So they mm. tapped into it brilliantly. They really did. Um and I uh I don't know what the commercials were like in the States for PlayStation, but I do know that over here in the UK, there was a very famous um, commercial for uh, PlayStation when it was like sort of first released. It was put out by, um, by, by Sony in London and it was called Double Life. And it was about how it was interviewing real people. I mean, they were, they were obviously actors, right? But there was, these were real people, people who worked in factories, people who worked in offices, people who drove taxis and, and things like that. And they were saying, yeah, during the, during the day, I, you know, I do this boring job and it's, you know, it pays the bills. But at night, I become a rogue. Or I go on an adventure across the planet, or I go and, you know, I, I race cars uh, and go at millions of miles an hour. And it had this wonderful feel like, uh, you can, you can live your, your normal day to day life, but then you can also, even if it's hidden from everyone else, you can go on this double life, almost like it was a secret, right? But obviously, like, uh, for, for sort of the young professionals, those who were 20 plus, maybe they didn't want their friends to know that they played video games. Well, you don't have to. You know, this this device is small enough that it fits in your living room and no one will know what it is. But you can go on this double life. Here here we had a, a pretty fun commercial for the PS1, for the original PlayStation, with um, Crash Bandicoot driving a van into the Nintendo parking lot and yelling, Hey, plumber boy! <laughs> <laughs> I do remember seeing that one online. Um that's a genius bit of marketing. <laughs> yeah, you know, 
the best commercial in my view, and there have been some great video game commercials, but the one that really takes the cake is, and I actually write about it fairly, you know, well, I, I describe it pretty carefully, at least, is the For Michael um, commercial at, during the PS3 era, which, um, you know, it's a brilliant commercial. I mean, you, 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 just for for your viewers, uh, that's the one where uh, two World War II vets from most likely meeting yes. guys from yeah. Call of Duty come into this Star Wars like bar, and and all the characters, almost not all of them, but quite a few of them from Sony exclusives are in, in that bar, and they're all talking about this guy who helped, who saved them in some tough scrape, and. You know, one of the things you have to think about, I mean, it's an important point. It, it, I sound so pro-Sony and I'm not, but, but one of the things you have to think about is if Microsoft had tried to do that commercial with, with Xbox exclusives, you'd have the, the Master Chief from Halo and that's pretty good. And then you'd have some cars from Forza and that's about it. And if Nintendo mm-hmm. did that commercial, the bar would be full of wee little people and it would be, kind of be embarrassing. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, you could, by, by that time, you could have populated it with that huge crowd from Super Smash Brothers, but they're still mm. wee little funny people. And whereas <laughs> the, the Star Wars type bar that they did for PlayStation, you know. Call Call of Duty, which was across two of the platforms, but um, God of War, Final Fantasy was exclusive to them at that point still, I think. Pretty darn amazing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, um, it showed off just the, what the different, how many varied games were actually on the actual system. So you had like Metal Gear Solid, Tomb Raider, um, yeah. You had Uncharted. There was all sorts of very memorable characters. Yes, but it's one of those. As you're watching it, you think, "Oh yeah," and yeah, that was on that was on a, a place. And so was that. And you could just point out so many of them. And and the it's other so thing, iconic as well. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. The other thing is, and you got to give Sony props for this. Sony will do a game, and they'll do a game right. They'll throw a huge budget at it, even though it's not necessarily going to be a big game. You know, you think of Ico, you think of Shadow of the Colossus, you think of Parappa the Rapper. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> these were all great games for small audiences that really expanded the art of video games. Um, you know, Nintendo watches the bottom line very carefully. And Microsoft is more imitative than innovative, I think, frequently. Um, so Sony needs some pretty, pretty. you know, I, I, you look at Spider-Man Miles Morales that came out with the launch of PS5. Um, in some ways, just a return to the last Spider-Man, and in other ways, a completely different game. But... Even if it was just the same game in some ways with a different, you know, a, a slightly altered world, um, the sheer quality of it, just mm. the sheer artistic quality 
it, it helps that that uh, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse is my all-time favorite superhero movie too. So, yeah. So it I'm was biased. indeed an amazing film. Uh, I think I think that's allowed though because it was an amazing right. film. <laughs> what was the um the thing you wanted to get to, Jay? What was the Oh yeah, um, so the uh, thing, the yeah, thing. yeah. So we've 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 talked a lot about uh, lots of different stories already, um, and one of the things I really liked about uh, Volume One, and like I say, it wasn't called Volume One was when it was released, is that it is full of these wonderfully rich stories about the the history of uh, video games. You know, conversations with people who were were there and were important in those decisions. Uh, Nolan Bushnell, um, Al Alcorn. Um, you know, all, all of the, all of the big names that were involved in everything are mentioned and all of these stories happen. And I was wondering, um, what are some of your favorite stories that you, when you were, when you were writing about them, when you were interviewing people, you were like, wow, that is, that is an amazing story. I really hope I get to tell this across oh, volume one and volume two, right? So many fun stories. Just some of it is just crazy too. Um, you know, my, one of my favorite stories as a programmer, you'll appreciate this. The guys who, you know, um, for the NES, they didn't want you to, um, you know, you had to get licensed if you weren't an authorized game. And, of course, a lot of people broke that. Um, famously, Tengen would, you know, shock the chip, your your uh, verification chip, security chip. But one of my favorites was that there was a company called Wisdom Tree, I think. And they made Christian games. And um, one, Nintendo couldn't stop them or decided not to stop them because at the time, especially in the United States, Japanese businesses had a bad reputation. You know, America was up in arms about how um, Japan was really handing the United States its hat as far as electronics and importing and exporting was going. But secondly... You know, so a Japanese company going after a com- uh, an American Christian company didn't sound good. But <laughs> my favorite story about that was this one company that was making those games for for Wisdom Tree. Um, they got paid. They got paid for making a bunch of games of Christian games, and they weren't Christian. <laughs> they they went and 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 splurged and, and lost all their money by going to Las Vegas and spending it on booze and gambling and stuff. <laughs> lost it in a week. <laughs> I, I thought that was a fun story. Uh, an, another do as fav- I say, not as I do. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think the guys at Wisdom Tree itself were probably pretty, uh, you know, uh, straight up. But another favorite, favorite story was just, you know, you, you can't even think about it without smiling a little bit, was... Nolan Bushnell, who was, by all means, I'm sure, a very good uh, engineer. But now he's running the company, and he'd at Atari, he'd come and he'd go look at what the engineers were doing, and he'd say, well, you should do this and this. And they'd do that, and then he'd come a few weeks later and say, oh, you know, it would work better if you do this and this. And he'd have them switch it back to what they'd done the first time. And... So Al Alcorn, the head of engineering at the time, the guy who made the first Pong machine, um, came up, first he came up with, with a rule that was, um, don't, well, first, the first thing he would do is when no one would come into the, 
R&D area, he'd come and put his hand on Nolan's shoulder and say, oh, yeah, did, but did you see this? And he'd lead him to the next place and he'd go, yeah, but did you see this? And then he'd, he'd guide him to the door and he'd say, Nolan, thank you for coming by. Come back anytime. And he had people paging him in case Nolan did come to the R&D. And then Nolan got wise to that. So he put out a new rule, which was you don't have to do anything, or you can't do anything Nolan tells you until he's told you to do it three times. And they had a meeting in the Grass Valley place, and Nolan said, you know, hey, I hear that you've got this rule that says you don't have to do anything I tell you until I've told you three times. I'm telling you right now, when I tell you to do something, you do it. And somebody from the back of the auditorium yelled, hey, can you say that two more times? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, just some fun stuff. Uh, yeah, I yeah. think a lot of that fun stuff disappeared between volume, towards the end of volume two, or volume one even, because mm -hmm. it, it became a lot more corporate. Um, mm -hmm. And you wouldn't even get the stories, you know, because corporate buttons down and makes sure that you don't get all the quirky stories necessarily, too. Um so it's not as fun and as quirky in volume two, uh, I don't think. The, I mean, there's still some fun stories. There's still some good things that, that come through. But you get a very intimate look, for instance, at the late Satoru Iwata in there. Um, and you get a better look, you know, the, uh, the idea of Nintendo meaning the luck from heaven. Um, you get a really close look at just how lightning not only struck twice, but three times at Nintendo or four times or infinitely. Um, a lot of things like that. Um, yeah, a lot of stuff like that. Uh, sure, sure. One of, the, one of the things I do is I try to create a rhythm with Volume 2 where I'll have a chapter that talks about the new consoles coming in and then a chapter about how they competed with each other. Actually, I'll do a chapter on like the new PlayStation, then the new, then the new um, Xbox, and then the new Switch or Wii or whatever it is at that time. Switch isn't in this book because Switch didn't exist for so long. And then I'll talk mm -hmm. ab about how they did and competed on the market. And then I'll talk about phenomena that happened during that time. Um, my favorite chapter in the book is actually the last chapter, which is about the dysfunctional relationship between Hollywood and Silicon Valley, uh, about how just about every game based on a movie has been bad, but that's okay because every movie based on a game has been even worse. So. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. I've never thought of it like that. I like that. It's like, it's almost like one downmanship, you know? <laughs> there you go. Exactly. How low can you bad. go? See what we've got. Yeah. yeah. Think that's bad. You just wait to see what we got. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll take I'll take your your bad Harry Potter game and raise you a Mario. You know. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. Like it, and then it's all wrapped up with. Um, a really interesting thing. So uh, in the 90s, 
when the or I guess 2000 when the the movie Doom came out Roger Ebert the dean of American reviewers by definitely the dean of American film reviewers um, and an amazing writer and an incredibly deep thinker made the comment that he hadn't seen the movie or that he hadn't played the game when he reviewed the movie he didn't like the movie um, it's not a very lovable movie but actually in all fairness I haven't finished the movie I've tried, <laughs> but it, you only get so many hours in a day and so many days in a year and so many years in a life. So I have not finished that movie, even though it has Carl Urban, who I really like a lot. Um, but the, the point is that he said, he, said, he said that he hadn't played the game and people were furious. And, and then he doubled down and he said that he didn't cons- think that games could be art. Ooh, and contentious. That set off. He said that if, if you looked over the next few years at all the emails he received, it was something like 90% of them were for, from furious gamers. And part of the reason he said that games couldn't be art, a big part was he defined art as games are interactive. They're a partnership is what he said. And he said that art is not a partnership. You know, Picasso paints a painting and you look at it and that's it. You don't, you don't get to repaint it. You don't get to touch it up. The art is there. He's presented you the art and he, he's dead wrong. And the reason he's dead wrong, either of you guys ever seen the movie Groundhog's Day? Yeah. Okay. Remember mm-hmm. the, the very end where there's a party and he goes and he plays Rachmaninoff? Mm-hmm. And he plays a very yeah. jazzed version of Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff mm-hmm. didn't create a jazzed version of Rachmaninoff. Rachma- he interacted with Rachmaninoff. Mm. Uh, another example I can give you, a famous, uh, fam- famous artist from, from England's past, Yoko Ono. Um, yes. One of your greats, right? Uh, <laughs> she did a... She, she was an avant-garde paint, uh, artist before she hooked mm-hmm. up with John Lennon. And she one of her exhibits was she came in a black dress with a pair of scissors, and for a yeah. amount of money, you could cut a piece away from her dress. That's interactive. Mm. Nobody ever said it wasn't art. It may not have been artistic, but, but mm. it was interactive and it was art. Um, <laughs> when... They play a waltz and people dance to it. Guess what people are doing? They're interacting with art. So are we going to then turn around and say that waltzes can't be it can't be um, can't be art? And then then you're at the place where it's like, well, okay, Be- Beethoven or Strauss they create a, a, a concerto, but they also created a waltz. So mm-hmm. is the waltz not art, but the concerto is art? I mean, it, it's a ridiculous postulate. Uh, post, postulate that he took there. It doesn't hold up. I almost want to say postulate that he came up with there. It, it's, <laughs> you know, it, it's one of those things where people say, where people say, well, you can't be art because you're not good enough because, and then they make up something. 
And and I'm not putting Roger Ebert down because I think Roger Ebert was amazing. He said something else that was phenomenal. I think everyone should should listen to this and internalize it. And that is, he reviewed the Scooby-Doo movie. Um, not great art, but but he he <laughs> commented that he he said I understand it's based on a cartoon. He'd never seen a Scooby-Doo cartoon, and you could say, well, how can you review? a Scooby-Doo movie and not even have seen the cartoon. And his response was brilliant, was genius, was so exact. What he said was, a movie needs to be able to stand on its own. If I have to have watched yeah. the cartoon in order to enjoy the movie, then the movie becomes nothing more than an extended inside joke. Mm-hmm. That's a great yeah. comment. So, you know, I don't agree with them about video games not being art. I think there's some amazing art in video games. I think uh, some of it goes back a ways, you know. Um, I, I think, yeah, I, I think that um, anybody who says that Sid Meier or, or Peter Molyneux um, never created art is, is just dead wrong. I think that, mm-hmm. frankly... If, um, if, oh, Euripides, some of his plays, because, you know, he, I believe it was Euripides that did some comic plays. If those can be, can be considered art, then I think that Miyamoto's, a lot of Miyamoto's games should be considered art. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's a, uh, I feel like it's an overused example, but, um, you know, Final Fantasy VII, there I knew is, you were going to say that. <laughs> there is a section of that game. Um, I'm going to say spoilers for a game that came out in 1997, but, you know, spoilers, uh, where one of the characters that you have watched grow and become uh, part of the team is, if for want of a better phrase, assassinated in front of you. And there is nothing you can do about it as the player. Yeah, and, and for, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> for a lot of people, that is a highly emotional moment. And uh, for me, I feel like my own personal definition of art, and I'm no, I'm no art scholar. I'm not a very, I'm definitely not a smart person. I should not be commenting on this. But um, my, my own feeling is that um, art should elicit some kind of emotional response or maybe a physical response. You were saying there about when people get up and dance to waltzes. They are, it is eliciting a physical response in them. Yeah. Um, a particular, uh, very, uh, like a, a strong written piece that is, uh, expressing an opinion. It, you know, it brings about, uh, an emotional response, maybe a, a, a physiological response, maybe even a response that causes the person to question their own thinking. Is that a philosoph- philosophical response? I'm not sure. Um, but anything that can elicit that kind of response, any kind of physical, emotional, that kind of thing, to me, is art, uh, mainly because I can't do that. <laughs> I, I think um, I, I think Final Fantasy VII is a great example of how video games truly can be art and, and yeah. emotional. Um, I'm glad that re- you know, that's been redone with better graphics. Uh, it, it's funny because, you know... I remember thinking at the time, wow, when the first one came out, wow, you know, the whole game looks as good as the cutscenes. And, you know, and then when you go back and you actually look at it, you know, they're weebles. They wobble, but they don't fall down, those characters, you know? Um, yeah. 
I'm never going to be able to see Final Fantasy in the same light again. Now. Yeah, well, but look at the emotion that, that they pulled out even with those bad graphics. You know, think mm-hmm. about even... What was the the uh, Zelda link, linked? Was it oh, for the, the, N- the Super past. Nintendo? Link, was that... Uh, Link to the Past, was it? I think, was that Link to the Past? Whatever it is, remember so, about yeah. this, you know, like the scene with the ghost, with the ghost boy um, in mm-hmm. the woods. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. here, here's a little game even. Did, did you ever play Klonoa? I have not, no. No, well, if you, if you finish I'm going to have to go on my list now. At the end, you know, there's just a scene where after they've had this big adventure, um, Klonoa is this little strange i think as, as i recall sort of like a cat-like creature but he's lying down with a little boy afterwards and the little as i and again I, I could be conflating games here but as i recall the boy says to klonoa you know you're just a dream or something and klonoa and everything just sort of gets sucked away and you know it's after you've done this whole adventure and yeah you know they there's great stuff storytelling and as far as I'm concerned, you know, I also write science fiction novels. Storytelling mm-hmm. is art. Intro music is Among the Stars by Muse Station Productions. Outro music is I Need You Watashi no Sabate by GH. Spoiler break music is Spectrum Subdiffusion Mix by Phonics. Palette cleanser music is Breathe Deep, Breathe Clear by Siobhan Dagay. See the show notes for more details.